Welcome back to the Registry Hour Roundup for this week, commencing Monday the 3rd of August. And hopefully you've had a good weekend, you've enjoyed the sunshine as the high pressure sits over Europe and brings uh, lovely sun across all of us. And uh, even if you're inside working from home, uh, we hope that it's brightened up your day. And we're going to brighten up your week now because we have got... Uh, an old friend of the Registry Hour Roundup joining us, a man who was once described by uh, Mario Draghi as a legend of awesomeness. That's true. Uh, a man who was the uh, CEO of CMETR and uh, is now head of London Reporting House, an old friend of ours from the Roundup Season 1, Danny Corrigan. Thank you. It's great. Now, Danny uh, and our very own Dr. Evil of Brexit, yes, he's back to using that title, John Kernan, the CEO of Registry Hour in the UK and head of product for Europe, uh, were on a panel yesterday about SFTR landing in the marketplace and getting the sort of reviews of how it's gone from experts in the field. We'll be covering that in this episode. And also, uh, the virtual studio crew is here, a little bit reduced. Uh, the voice of reason, Nick Bruce, can't join us this week. But with us, of course, is uh, the nicest and most efficient person in the organization, head of client services, Barbara Ruiz Alonso. Hi, hello, everyone. And also, of course, Dr. Evil himself, John Kern. Good morning, everyone. Now, this is a financial services podcast, and anything could happen in the next 15 minutes. So we are going to uh, read a disclaimer to keep our compliance folks happy. But this season, we're doing it live, and we're going to be doing it to uh, a recording of Nick Bruce's daughter, Megan, who will be playing Sweet Home Alabama on the piano. This podcast is sponsored by Registry R and features members of the Registry R team offering their personal opinions. It is not intended to be taken as any form of legal, tax or other professional advice and there is no representation made as to the accuracy or completeness of the information, nor does it necessarily reflect the opinions of Registry R as an organisation. Yay, well done. Excellent. Last week, John and Danny were on a virtual panel event. Uh, Danny was uh, chairing it called SFTR Lands in the Market. And uh, it's with the CISI, the Chartered Institute of Securities and Investments. And we're going to be posting a link to that when we post this online. So have a look at the LinkedIn post and you'll be able to click through to the video of that event. Danny, tell us more about it. Well, it was gifted and talented. We had Richard Kawato, who has been a long-time repo consultant, former Bank of England, long, long time repo consultant, uh, and he's worked very hard on the repo side of SFTR. Richard Colville, who is, has extensive uh, experience in securities lending operationally, and he runs a company now called Consolo. And then the very smart but talented Jonathan Lee from Kaizen Reporting. Kaizen Reporting is the is that the firm growing fast, and what those guys do is they do assurance, repo assurance. They do random checks to make sure that what you've been reporting is correct. Then Tim Hartley, he was he was kind of front of room guy from Duff and Phelps, explaining how things are day to day with clients. And then John Kern and myself, and that was it. So there were six of us. Of course, Registry Our Roundup regulars will know that Tim Hartley of Duff and Phelps, he was uh, on our season two premiere. So do check out that episode. Uh, Tim's a great guest. And also, of course, Dario Crispini from season one just a few months ago. He was our first special guest. Good stuff. Danny, let's say you can't see the video today. What are the big takeaways from the panel event? Just to keep people updated. Yeah, well, I think there's one of shock, surprise, in that it's gone, it appears to have gone well. 
uh, I think, really very well. So if you look what's actually happened, especially in terms of data that's been uh, that that's been successfully sent into the trade repositories, uh, the numbers have gone up week by week. There's a there's a almost a million transactions each week showing up as positions, and 1.3 million showing up as trades, uh, and, and increasing week on week on the two week of data we've got. So from that data, what we've worked out is. The firms that had to report look like they have done. So that means that they've sorted themselves out. They've got the flows working. They've basically networked what they needed to do inside. So the firms have done it and they've spoke with their advisors and, and some of the, uh, uh, the uh, service providers, ancillary service providers, and got, it, got everything lined up, rules engines applied and so forth. Then into the trade repositories, so we've done a great job in the trade repositories. I've got the data out to the plethora of regulators and supervisors. So it down through the whole chain, it looks, and, and John will come on sure a little bit later on on that, it just looks like those that had to do the job did the job. But the other one was this, is, and, and John will tell us about this, the regulator engagement this time around was completely different to EMEA. With EMEA, after it went live, there were certain countries where it wasn't quite clear which regulator was going to get the data. Was it going to be a, a, a prudential regulator like a central bank, or was it going to be a conduct authority like the FCA and so forth? And some countries that wasn't clear. It wasn't clear for up to six months. This time around, clear. And uh, you know the, the evidence of a lot of work gone into this engagement. So I, I think this is a, looks to me like it's good. There's there's, a, there's elements where things aren't so good, but what we worked out from that yesterday is you could say if, this, if you saw this as a project, you'd say. We can see the problems, we can see the scale of the problems, and we'll work on the solution. So, yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't know, out of 10, I'd certainly give it, a, I'd say a seven, but, uh, you know, I'd have to see what John thinks of that, of that as well. So, John, seven out of 10, do you think it's, uh, that feels like a really good, I mean, for a, for an early piece of legislation that was delayed as well, obviously, by the, the COVID uh, crisis. So, in fact, was rolled out the sort of phase one, phase two simultaneously, and of course, phase three coming. That feels like a really good uh, result. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Um I think, uh, you know, from, from a client perspective, the clients are obviously uh, focusing on, on, on getting their initial trades in, um, of course. Um, what we saw with EMIR was obviously between, between the original reporting start date and then the requirement to report collateral valuations, we saw a six-month lag um, or a six-month uh, period, if you like, uh, between the two uh, back in 2014. But obviously, that's not the case here with SFTR. So... We are seeing um, we're seeing the initial trades being reported. We're seeing very very low rejection rates. I think I looked yesterday, and more than ninety seven percent of the trades we received um, passed. Um, where we are maybe seeing uh, a few issues um, is with regard to the life cycle events, and um, in particular the reporting of collateral. Um, but as Danny said, you know, um, I think. You know, given the complexity of SFTR um, and where we are today, I think that's uh, I think that's a very positive position to be in. All right, now that that is a great number when you hear it. Ninety-seven percent of trades have gone through, three percent rejected, 
And um, that sounds very good. Um, I want to come to Barbara and say, so, Barbara, I mean, presumably the clients are all delighted. I was, I was thinking your phones would be ringing off the hook, client services, with lots and lots of questions and issues. Presumably you've all been sitting around, uh, you know, playing Candy Crush and chilling because it's all run so smoothly. Um, yeah, it sounds like that because 97% of accepted um, ratio sounds very, very good. But unfortunately, that's only like the first step of all this story. So then we come to the reconciliation, which is at the end uh, one of the uh, requirements also of the regulation. So basically, you and your counterparty need to uh, agree on what you are reporting. And that this becomes more tricky because uh, there are, you know, these um, T plus one uh, reporting obligations. And then there is a period in which the TRs need to agree on uh, how to share the information reported. So it goes into the reconciliation process. Uh, you remember we discussed in, on season one about the UTI, famous UTI yeah. issue. So uh, we still are analyzing reconciliation ratios and, and reasons about, uh, well, why we are not reaching, uh, in some cases, the, 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 let's say, accepted ratios of uh, reconciliation and matching, but uh, which is difficult because, you know, that, that really goes, it's, it's completely different and there, there may be very different reasons why uh, a trade is not matching. But uh, I, I guess uh, our our participants will still need to to well they, they still they cannot uh, chill out as you were saying uh, because it, it is a complex process and I think it's very good news about the, the rejection rates but we still need to, to to do some quality updates before the authorities can really have a, a quality good quality data. Danny, in the intro, you said that uh, you'd also identified a few issues on the panel. So, yeah, what isn't going so well with SFTR right now? Uh, the One of the bigger ones is about collateral. If you were to look at the reports that have been put out, and uh, ICMA has done a very good job going to the uh, trade repositories, public websites, so it's going to Regis, going to uh, DCCC and University and the Polish guys, and putting it together. And they've got a lovely document. And you look at it, and it's very good. And so at the high level, it gets the 7 out of 10. But when you dig down a little bit, you see in there for a start, the cash value of uh, positions, 8.5 trillion. It's a lot. Collateral market value, 11. That's just bizarre. That yeah. doesn't sound right, you know, because uh, it, you know, it seems to be out. And that inconsistency feeds through, through this. But it's not surprising because... I think as Barbara said, this is one of the, the complex issues is, the, is around collateral. And as John rightly said, when this went live, when EMEA went live in February 14, there was a six-month period before we had to put in collateral valuations and gave people time. Uh, so there's a whole array of things around that. There's going to be X off and X, uh, X, which is all to do with whether it's traded on an exchange or off an exchange. That kind of problem, systemic problem, as John had said, we put that one right once, it's right for good. And that's what I think will, will happen uh, going forward. Another thing that's that's uh, good news, I think, in this is the elements of delegated reporting. If you're reporting for someone, you, you kind of have to get it right. You put your side of the trade in, and you put a reverse in for them. It'd be difficult to get that wrong. So that in itself is, is, is let's just console, call it a reconciliation process. 
the pairing piece. So the inter-TR reconciliation, uh, as Jean said, is it's just such a strange, strange thing. It's uh, it has to be done because you're under the Treaty of Rome. Everyone can pick any trade repository they wish, and and have done. So if you if your counterparty has a trade within the trade same trade repository, that's great. It's easy. If it's across, it's difficult. And as we said, it's it's basically the, the trades have to be put together, and you go looking for the UTI and the LEI to see whether you can match them up. So that there is is a difficulty that I don't know what we'll ever do about that to get that right. But it did become go in the end work well for exchange trading derivatives. So if you will. The, if we look at what went wrong with Amir, and a lot went wrong with Amir, we've started off much better than Amir. We've got, and we can look at these issues now, and they'll stand now. Okay, so I want to throw this one out to uh, John and Barbara. Um, NCAs, they were pretty flexible about the implementation of Amir. Um, NCAs uh, presumably are being pretty flexible about the implementation of SFTR. How's, how are they responding? Because they're almost like a client of the TR, aren't they? Barbara? Yeah, well, I mean, as, as as Danny said before, for Emmy, it was also time until they really agreed who had to actually supervise each country, and 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 that was that was difficult. It was a difficult process. I remember for the onboarding at that time. To, today, for SFTR, we had every every uh, authority onboarded before the thirteenth of July, which by far by far didn't happen for Emmy. Uh, and so that, that, that's been a huge uh, step. And then also for them, it will be easier now to, to do the supervision because we uh, Trace already exists. So for the ones that do not know, Trace is basically a platform where ESMA uh, put together all the information uh, that the TRs provide. And so the authorities only need to go into Trace and get the data from there. However, in EMIR, when all this started, each NCA had to log in to every TR, meaning they had to do, uh, you know, the, the cherry picking or uh, be, be, to do their supervision. So if they had to supervise two legs which were reported to different TRs, they actually had to uh, put all that together. And, and, and for the analysis, it was, it was very difficult. And I remember talking to, to some authorities that, really didn't have the well the knowledge because no one had not only ncas it was something new for everybody uh, and then the resources to actually look at the huge amount of data uh well that these these regulations cover so i think uh today we are much better prepared and ncas are better prepared and so i cannot tell if they will be uh, as flexible as in emi because uh, i think they also know entities are, are also they they have a deeper knowledge so i will say they they won't be but let's say let's see well this this study also was one of the themes of um, the discussion yesterday wasn't it there was a very ominous expression i think you might have used um concerning market um participants uh worrying about the dreaded knock on the door from from the national competent authority yeah that's uh so what's gone on with covid so we've got covid and this is running simultaneously so the I, fca and I, I gather all other regulators have more or less done the same thing they've allowed firms to do things in a manner they were never allowed to do before but that forbearance is going to end soon. But in parallel, they were the, the regulators have got much uh, 
they're much more sure of their game now than they used to be. And they know what to look for in other kinds of, kinds of reporting. And I think what they'll do is they will come knocking on the door soon, not so much for SFTR, but reporting all around, but they won't give the grace or forbearance that we saw with Amir. And there was a lot of grace and forbearance there, meaning, you know, it did, that uh, if people, so long as people are tempted to report, they've got an LEI, they've got an UTI, they did work to have generate and so forth. That was enough then, that's not enough now. And so I think what we'll, we'll see is that the supervisors, the conduct authorities will be very interested in what's going on all around on all kind of reporting because they haven't had the control over the member firms over the last six months because they haven't been able to, for instance, they haven't been able to do an inspection. That will end. So I don't know how you do an inspection. You turn up in one of those big buildings in Luxembourg or Paris or London and there's no one there. So I guess people are going to have to go back to work, some people, because I think there will be inspections. I've heard this, by the way, that. So there's a view. The regulators are using... There's another myth around this is that the regulators don't do anything with the data. So if you sit around with a bundle of people in the reporting world, they say, you know, they do nothing with it. And I guess you guys would know better than me that they do do things with it. And they ask questions. Now, some regulators are more interested than others. Uh, and some look for different reasons. The prudential authorities look for different reasons to the uh, conduct authorities. So all in all, that is that, that there's no need for the grace and forbearance there was before. And John also on that call yesterday, what people said, what the regulators are now focusing on is acknowledgements back. The fact that you have to recognise a trade has been acknowledged back to you or something wrong with it. So if you will, it's the chain goes all the way down through, as you rightly say, through ESMA Trace Portal to the regulator and so forth. But it comes back, and it, that, if it comes back, you have to acknowledge it. And that's how you get complete audit, that, that acknowledgement back. Act back, act, knack back, they call it. In the, act back and knack back, they call it in the States. And in the States, CFTC did find a big German bank for ignoring that at the very start of the Frank reporting. Okay, act back, knack back. You heard it here first. I was going to say I haven't heard that since the return of the Jedi in the battle sequence at the end, of course, where I think that's one of the admirals who says, it's a trap. Um, good. Okay, on that front, I do have another question I want to get to, because last season we uh, covered a story that was broken by our old friend Drew Nickel, editor of Securities Lending Times. What happened to the UTI issue? Are people using SWIFT? Is there a market infrastructure uh, player that sort of emerged that's a sort of best fit, seems to be preferred? Or is it all just uh, one of the problems we're facing is that there's lots of different ways people are using their UTIs and, and that could be one of the issues that eventually leads to someone knocking at your door? Well, look, I, I know the whole hierarchical uh, issue and how that's come about. And I'm quite surprised, that especially in securities lending, it seems to have worked because we did know there was big gaps in the security lending side of who was going to provide the UTI. Uh, you could see who was going to provide that on, on repos, especially repos that traded or traded and exchanges that have gone through the clearinghouse. Um, so I was surprised that there's so many securities lending trades that have been received and it clears there's a UTI in there. So I think it's piecemeal. Like the UTI is coming off a whole series of different exchanges and so forth. Uh, and, you know, the uh, hierarchical water flow fall approach that we had for repo, well, sorry, for derivatives was to be applied here. But I don't actually know really what happened. I can see the outcome of it. But So that was the theory. The outcome looks good. 
whether they generated it themselves because and sent it over on a ticket. That's actually reasonably straightforward. But when we, with Amir, we got together with two or three trade repositories yourselves and a number of the banks and said, right, use the equation that's given by ESMA. And, you know, oddly, it didn't all agree. Mainly agreed, mainly agreed, but one of the, one of the clearinghouses didn't. And so it's not as straightforward as you think. Barbara, what have uh, clients been saying about their UTIs? Has that been anything that's, that's caused a problem? Or is everyone very happy with the way that they're working out their UTIs? Are they just agreeing it mutually? Well, you know, this is this is a very complex process, as, we, as we've been saying uh, through the podcast today. Uh, so they are they are actually investigating. So when when uh, trades do not reconcile, there's a whole process of review of, of each trade and see. Well, first of course, it, so once it's accepted, fully accepted, there's no errors. Then it's more like, okay, so who's my counterparty on this trade? What are the fields that are not matching? Uh, what did we agree? So it's really it's it's a very complex process. So uh, of course, the UTI is the main reason. Uh, I mean, it's the first thing you need to check because if, if there's no, uh, if, the, if the UDI doesn't match, then then we cannot uh, compare both sides of the trade. Uh, and and I think, well, I mean, I I could say it's early still to to go into the details of, of uh, you know how good they are doing on this. We haven't received many questions still because. I mean, the theory is written, so they, they should be able to, to, to know where to find or how to, to build the UTI. But then, you know, when it comes in to the practice, then these problems come, but they really know that here we are not able to, to, to help too much because at the end we, we, we cannot know for every counterparty or for, for every set of, 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 of trades uh, how it needs to be built and so on. We're not fully in the SFTR flow yet, are we? B because it's October before the sort of phase three, third wave uh, implementation sort of comes through. And presumably that also means that there are still non-financial counterparties and, and, and market participants who are not onboarded with a TR or haven't selected uh, uh, the right kind of partner they need to you know, be compliant come October. I mean, obviously, at this stage, with phase three going live in October, one would expect that they're significantly advanced in their in their project management and are, you know, currently, you know, well on the way to completing their testing. Um, you could look at it and say also they 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 will have the benefit of hindsight. So some of the things we're discussing here, you know, the the, the potential pain points, um, you know, they they will have had um, some period of time um, to have been ironed out. Uh, before phase three goes live. Um, you know, if there are any market participants, mancos or, or, or corporates who are currently in the position um, that they're still not sure in terms of a provider, I, I you know, I would, I would suggest they, they need to get busy and uh, we'd be happy to, we'd be happy to help if they um, pick up the phone and give us a call. Uh, Danny, we have a new sort of regular uh, weekly question we ask our guests, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, what is your breakfast of choice? Oh, my word. Soaked oats with berries. Wow, really? Nice. That's very healthy. Yeah, uh, my wife kindly makes that, you know, in a bulk uh, for four days or whatever that kind of stuff. 
and that we've done it for not many years. It's yeah, it's it's a good start. Doesn't mean the day continues so well, but it's a good start. I'm going to adopt that because if I adopt that, then my hair might grow as long and, and, and lustrous as uh, <laughs> as Danny's. I went in to, to the, get my hair cut after 19 weeks, and I went in looking like a BG, an aging BG. I've, I've come out, look at this, looking like a picky blinder. <laughs> that breakfast, by the way, that I've been doing a healthy living app uh, called Noom in lockdown. I've been doing this healthy living app, and one of their recommended breakfasts, because of the excellent levels of protein and the slow-release carbohydrate and the shot of vitamin C is, of course, steel-cut oats soaked overnight with berries. So you are on the diet that is taking uh, America by by storm and has actually enabled me to shed over a stone and a half uh, since lockdown began. It's not just through anxiety. Uh, it is actually genuinely through healthy living. So, yes, hats off, Danny. You've won the breakfast competition. There, I declared it. Ha, so take that, Seb Malik, with your apricot jam, and Tim with your smashed avocados. This is we're we're going healthy here. Okay, okay. I'm sorry, by the way, Seb and Tim, don't don't write in. You know what? You you're still our favourites. Um, I mean, oh god, I'm digging myself in deeper now. Well, that is it for this week's uh, episode of the Registry R Roundup. Thank you for listening. And all that remains from us is to say goodbye from Head of Client Services, uh, the nicest and most efficient person in the organization, Barbara Ruiz Alonso. Goodbye, everyone. And also, it is goodbye from uh, the CEO of Registry R in the UK and also Head of Product in Europe, John Kernan. Bye, everybody. Stay safe. And a huge Registry R Roundup thank you uh, to the star of season one who has come back to join us. Uh, season two and hopefully we will get you on again Danny uh, it is of course Danny Corrigan formerly the CEO of CMETR and now head of the ancillary firm London Reporting House goodbye and thank you Andrew thank you okay listen if you are back at work uh, hopefully um, the sun is still shining where you are and your office is running smoothly and the commute has gone well and if you're still working at home remember reach out on your networks engage with your colleagues and your friends and have a good week and a safe week and we will join you next week from the Red Star Roundup bye bye